Hi, everybody. Welcome to Pittsburgh Sports Memories. My name is Tim Hannon. And I'm Steve Ward. And as always, we're going to venture back to a Pittsburgh sports moment of the past and talk about it. This episode, we're going to talk about a goal that Yarmir Yager scored in 1999 that some people, including Yager, claim literally saved the Pittsburgh Penguins franchise. But let's 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 get going into this. Um, so so the Penguins in the 1990s um, were pretty successful at the onset of the decade. In 1991 and 1992, they won back-to-back Stanley Cups, and they are the toast of the town. And they're pretty successful the rest of the decade. Um, however, it's it's kind of a mixed record. It's it's they have a lot of success, but they also miss a lot of opportunities. And it's a lot of unfulfilled promise because they never do get back to the Stanley Cup Finals. And little by little, um, the key pieces of those teams kind of start leaving. Uh, Larry Murphy and Kevin Stevens and, and uh, Ron Francis. And, and the, big, the, the big hitter it happens after the 1997 season when Mario Lemieux, who is the, the greatest player, obviously, in the history of the franchise, decides to retire, he's, he's really riddled by back injuries, cancer, everything else. And he says, you know what, I, I can't do this anymore. And he retires at age 31, which is, which is a little shocking, but given the injuries, um, I think it's, it's understandable. And so by the time we get to the end of the decade, uh, by, by the 98, 99 season, again, many of those core pieces are gone, except for one guy, Yarmir Yager. Yager was, uh, uh, I believe, an 18-year-old rookie when they won the first cup. Um, and by this point, it's his team. It's his team. He's the captain. You know, he's, he's probably the best player in the world. Also, by this time, the, the NHL has undergone quite a transformation. It's now a very defensive-minded league. The teams that, that used to win were the, the Edmonton Oilers in the 80s or the the Penguins of those early 90s, teams that could score a lot of goals, teams that had speed, flew up and down the ice. By the time we get to the end of the decade, it's now teams like the New Jersey Devils and the Florida Panthers, teams that play this um, clutch and grab style of hockey. And Steve, I know it's a style that, that many fans detest, including, I think, us at the time. Yeah, I think, too, like the um, there's always been a like a theory I've heard is in 1967, the league did expand by six teams, and hockey was so regional back then that it probably took almost 20 years for the talent to kind of catch up. And then the goal, the goaltending too, was like there was a lot of stand-up goaltenders. And then Berdur came in, and there was another guy with the more the butterfly, which I just call ice sitting. Like you know, it's basically the old mighty ducks joke. You know, just get get a big kid to sit in the net. You know. So there's some of that, but two, the, the main thing was, like you said, the clutching and grabbing, and they had no, you weren't allowed to have a two-line pass, which means you could set all your guys up on the center red, and you couldn't pass pack, and they could just trap you between the blue and the red line, which was kind of the whole goal. And, and with being able to grab, that totally negates any speed through the neutral zone, so it makes it very difficult. And uh, you had said the... Uh, the Penguins were the toast of the town. Was that the uh, avocado toast, or we were a little, little before that? I guess. <laughs> uh, avocado toast will do. Although it's it's Pittsburgh, you, you have to pick a more blue collar toast. I think maybe, uh, maybe like, a Reuben sandwich or something. With there you go. Fries on it. There you go. There you go. Yeah. Um, so so yeah, the NHL is definitely. You mentioned the trap, and and the trap is is really what's dominating play right now, and that's not a style that the Penguins ever really adapt to. That's not their style of play. It's never been. It never was. Um, they, they're still trying to build around offense. And so it's not good for them. It's not good for the league. It's not good for the fans. H- heading into that 98-99 season, again, Yager, best player in the, in the league, best player in the world. Uh, the rest of the team really isn't that good. Uh, the only other really borderline star 
was Martin Straka, who wasn't really that that great. He he did some really good things for the Penguins later on, but at this point, he's he's now on his second stint with the Penguins, and he really had been mostly a disappointment um, up to this point, at least. And and if you look up and down the roster, I, I went back and, and looked at the roster for this year in preparation for this episode, and and just pulled some names off of there. You know, Jan Herdina, Brad Brad Rarenka, Kip Miller. Uh, Yerman Titov, who, who had a pretty good season that year, because uh, I believe he centered Yager's line. Uh, yeah. Alexei Morozov, who was um, who was a guy that, a Russian uh, player that had a lot of talent, but never really uh, became what he was supposed to become. He was he ended up being a much better KHL player than he ever did in the NHL for whatever reason. Which is awesome for the KHL, um, yeah. but not so wasn't so great for the Pens when no. they needed him. Um, Kevin Hatcher was probably their best defenseman. That's not saying a lot. Well, that was the old, let's sign the guy that always scored goals against us or did well against us. I mean, okay, I guess at least he can't do well against you now. <laughs> yeah, the, the Pittsburgh sports teams have a long history of anytime we sign the guy that, that killed us and said, oh, good, that guy always played so well against us. Now he plays for us. It, it's like never worked out well. I can think of just like examples off the top of my head. You know, um, John LeClaire, who the Penguins signed a few years later, stunk for us. He used to kill us. And then even into other sports, Derek Bell for the Pirates, that was a disaster. He always killed us. Um, who was the kick returner for the Ravens? J- Jacoby Jones. Remember Jacoby Jones? We he had Jacoby just... Jones. Wow, I forgot. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he had – I wish I had the stat in front of me, but he had something like negative 11 return yards or something on the season. It was some terrible stat. But, you know, guys like that – and and – Kevin Hatcher was one of those guys. I mean, he wasn't terrible for the Penguins, but he certainly wasn't, you know, they, they sort of got him. They had, they had Larry Murphy was their sort of like anchor defenseman. Then it, then it was Sergei Zubov for a while. And, and by this point, it's Hatcher, and Hatcher's just nowhere near those other guys. So just up and down the roster, not a very good roster. Um, Robbie Brown was on that team. He was also on his second stint with the Penguins, the guy that was really good in the late 80s. And by 1999 was you know, a shell of his former self also wasn't playing next to Lemieux, which really was his bread and butter for making him who he was. I mean, I loved Robbie Brown, but he really wasn't that great without Lemieux next to him. So just not a very good roster. The, the goaltending duties, I, I said Yager was the only one left from the cup teams. That's not entirely true. Tom Barrasso is still one of the goaltenders and, and he was the goaltender for the cup teams. But but by this point in his career, Barrasso is often injured and um, he's platooning with Peter Skudra in the net. So Brass is still there, but he's certainly not that effective anymore. And the head coach at this point is a guy named Kevin Constantine. He, he's actually heading into his second season. They had hired him the year before. And he was known for kind of being a disciplinarian. Um, that was a little bit different of a, of a coach to hire for the Penguins. But again, the, the way the league was headed and way the, the way the roster was made up they decided that that would be a better approach, kind of hiring like a, a tough disciplinarian. Constantine had been the coach of the San Jose Sharks when they were an expansion team. He had had some success there. And so um, Craig Patrick and the ownership decided that this guy might might be, you know, the guy to, to sort of take this new team over. And again, discipline, defensive style coaching did not really gel that well with um, the offensively geared Penguins certainly did not gel well with Yaramir Yager. Those two had some, some uh, you know, falling outs, I believe. Yeah, it still was there trying to, you know, play to the trend of defensive hockey. And I guess Yager didn't chafe Yager a little bit there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I can't remember if the dying alive, the, the infamous I'm dying alive comment was made during the Constantine era, I want to say it was. So so the Penguins enter the season as a team that is still competitive, um, mainly because they have the best player in the league. But it's, it's certainly not a team that's anywhere close to competing for a Stanley Cup. They're really a, a middle-of-the-pack hockey team entering that season. So that's what's going on on the ice. Meanwhile, there is a lot going on off the ice. So Howard Baldwin had bought the team from Eddie DeBartolo in 1991. 
And that was a good time to sell because the Penguins had just won the Stanley Cup. So you're, you're selling the, the best team in the league, right? Yeah, I guess they, they're running out of malls to build. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you can't have too many of those. Well, and they own the San Francisco 49ers as well. Yeah, um, but they he, his father made his money building like Century Three, and, right, and a right. bunch of malls in Ohio. They're from Youngstown, right? That's right. I forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I mean, so they they decided to sell the Penguins, and and Howard Baldwin is, is a guy that he was a, a movie producer, and he had owned some, I think, some like minor league sports franchises, but this is kind of his first foray into major major pro sports. And Baldwin's entrepreneurial kind of strategy was to, to buy things with very little of his own money invested. So for example, his, his actual cash investment in the Penguins was, wait for this, it was $1,000. That's it. He bought the Penguins with $1,000 cash. Now the I The price wish, of a used car. <laughs> I wish I would have known you could buy an NHL franchise for $1,000. That would have been a good thing to know. Um, uh, the rest of it is assumed debt and capital provided by other partners. So, um, so no, he doesn't just pay $1,000 and get the Penguins. He, he has to bring in partners. And his biggest partner is a, is a group called SMG. They're the, they're the group that manages the Civic Arena, where the Penguins play at the time. And he gives... The, a, a large percentage of the revenue streams from the arena's luxury boxes and and advertising and parking and all that kind of stuff. He gives that to SMD in return for the financing that Baldwin needs when he buys the team. Th this is an unusual deal. Most sports franchises receive most uh, of the revenue from their arena arena or stadium operations. That's why you have sports teams holding cities hostage, hostage over new buildings, right? Because they get so much revenue from those luxury boxes and, and things of that nature. Well, plus I think most of the owners realize that owning a building is basically a white elephant. Because, you know, it, for some reason, those things don't seem to appreciate like the normal real estate. I'm not sure why. But um, it seems to be that once they can offload that expense onto the uh, local government, which is sucker enough to go for it, you know, why you're giving billionaires, you know, free stuff, I don't know. But, hey, it is what it is. And if you can do it, more power to you, I guess. Exactly. And that's, and that's what owners typically do. Um, in this case, um, Baldwin has an older building and he's not getting a lot of the revenue from it. So that ends up that ends up causing some problems later. Um, at the same time that's happening, he also starts giving out enormous contracts in an effort to keep the team relevant in Pittsburgh. Now that's that's not, you know, that that you could say that was a bad idea. I, I don't think it was. I mean, it was it was kind of what he had to do at the time. Um, number one, um, player salaries are skyrocketing in general. But at that point, the NHL had had finally had a, a real TV contract and the the league is making a lot more money. It's becoming a lot more in the spotlight. And so player salaries in general were growing, going up. And I think also, you know, he, he looks across town, he sees what's happening with the Pirates where they were losing all their, their big stars and they were starting to become irrelevant. And the Penguins did not have the general generational kind of um, um, set of fans that the Steelers and Pirates did. You know, Steelers and Pirates had, you know, my dad was a fan and his dad was a fan. And the Penguins really didn't have that. The Penguins' popularity was still fairly new at this time. Yeah, I think, too, what, what happened, and we've, I think I've said this before, is like the, um, the way that the um, NHL was structured was more like baseball, whereas, like, you have all these regional networks because you have 82 games to cover, right? Yeah, so it's not like football where they negotiate as an NFL as a whole. There are some games that are nationally televised, but for the most part, it's regional. And when you end up with regional con TV contracts like that, you run into the same problems that baseball has where you have teams, markets like New York, maybe not L.A. at the time, but definitely New York, Chicago, Boston, Toronto, Montreal, especially Toronto and New York. 
it's just a license to print money. I mean, the money that they can put up and generate through their regional TV contract is not a revenue stream that the Penguins would have access to. So that was something else that works against, you know, the Pirates worked against the Penguins at that time until hockey finally, you know, saw the handwriting on the wall and realized they were either going to go the way of the Dodo or get a salary cap. So, Right, right. But that doesn't happen until the mid-2000s. Right. Right. So, so at this point, you have the big salaries. Now, you mentioned that the Penguins aren't a big market team. Well, other other smaller market teams could afford those big salaries because they had the revenues from their buildings, from the, the I don't know if they boxes. could afford it, but they could probably more readily afford it. Exactly. It definitely had gave them another competitive advantage on top of you know the Penguins. Yeah. Well, yeah, and by afford, I mean like not bankrupt you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. And and and. Baldwin. I guess it's all relative. It's a relative term, yeah. Right, and and Baldwin, so Baldwin doesn't have that. He gave, he gave all that away to SMG. So now he's stuck with the cost side of things. But unlike other owners that are doing this, he's unable to make up for it on the revenue side. Um, as the decade goes on, Baldwin makes more bad decisions. He accepts a $12 million improvement to the Civic Arena from, from city officials, rather than jumping on the bandwagon with the Steelers and Pirates. For a new building so he, he basically takes a payoff here we'll, we'll make some improvements to the civic arena which by this point is the oldest building in the nhl um, rather trying to force the the politicians to build him a new building the steelers and pirates are successful in that endeavor of course and and he's you know all he gets is a, a measly 12 million dollar improvement which doesn't do all that much he also turns over a lot of the advertising and marketing rights to Fox Sports Pittsburgh, that's the, the network that televises the Penguins. He turns that over because he needs cash. So um, he's just sort of making bad decision after bad decision, trying to get to the next year, you know, trying to basically stay, keep his head above water. Um, when Lemieux retires, uh, the Penguins still owe him $32 million. Uh, what, what had happened with Mario Lemieux was uh, he was the highest paid player on the team. And the team had asked him repeatedly to defer his salary until later. Uh, now, you, you might ask, why would Lemieux even, even consider doing that? Well, um, it, it benefited Lemieux also, because if Lemieux says, no, you need to pay me now, then he knows the team is going to say, okay, well, that means we can't keep this guy, your winger, or that defenseman, that puck-moving defenseman that helps you score goals, right? So Mario wanted to win another cup. He agrees to keep her deferring his salary, but when he retires, he says, okay, uh, you still owe me that $32 million in deferred salary, um, you know, and I'm entitled to that, and, and I want my rest of my salary because I, I kept deferring it at your request, which anybody would, right? Yeah, yeah, Mario was uh, definitely good for that. I mean, it's a shame he, you know, eventually, yeah. I mean, it does work out for him in the end, but that definitely was kind of a really bad deal for him there. It, it was. It was. The other thing that happens when he retires, attendance plummets. Uh, I never realized this until I until I saw the figure when I was doing the research for this episode. What Season ticket sales in Mario's last year uh, were 12,000. They sold 12,000 season tickets. The year after that, they only sell 8,000 season tickets. Yeah. That's going to be a problem. And I don't even think – what was the, the exceeding capacity of the, that arena? Was it 16, 15, 16? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, not only do you lose 25%, you're only at half capacity. So right. you're, you're really – I mean, you're really depending on walk-ups to make your money. Yes, which, you know, is dependent on you being good, which is dependent on so many other well, things. Well, the opponent, you know. The that. opponent, the weather that night, I mean, everything, Right, right. Um, so Baldwin um, brings in a guy named Roger Marino, who is a computer storage company executive from Boston, to invest $42 million of capital. Uh, this happens in 1997. Uh, Baldwin, I'm sorry, Marino loses most of that money, uh, later says he didn't realize how terrible Baldwin's previous decisions had been. And um, by, the fall, by the fall of 1998, when this season is about to begin, uh, Marino, who, who now owns the majority stake in the team, decides to file for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Um, 
and, and so, so that's really where this all culminates, a whole decade of bad financial decisions um, in the fall of 1998 culminates with the team having to declare bankruptcy, which is saying a lot, Steve. I mean, from a team that won back-to-back -back Stanley Cups just a few years earlier. Yeah, bankrupt is not a good place, although uh, was, that's Chapter 11, so that's, well, that's just reorganization, right? Yeah. Yeah, and it's chapter and it's, thirteen is you're selling like the 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 shelving and the seats out of the building. <laughs> yeah. So it's just a reorganization, which isn't as bad as chapter thirteen. You're not, you know, think you know Sears and you know who, it, that's chapter thirteen where you're not around anymore. Chapter eleven yeah. is the is definitely the first step, and then you know, and and that is meant to protect you from your creditors as well. Yeah, normally, if you can come up with a plan that you can make money and pay them back, you can come out of that eventually. Chapter 13 is the one where you're, um, yep, it was nice, but we're done. Yeah. <laughs> we're out, yeah. maybe. Yeah, and, and coming up with the, the funds to get out of Chapter 11 is going to be difficult. So, so we mentioned Mario Lemieux. Where is Mario in all this? So he retires in the spring of 1997. And when he retired, he had said real openly his plans were to play golf. And spend time with his family. He he was not going to be a coach, or he wasn't going to be in a, a studio announcer or anything like that for the league. He just wanted to live a quiet life. Um, he was going to stay in Pittsburgh, but he wanted to, you know, he wanted to just be a family man and 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 sort of get away from all of this. Well, when the team declares bankruptcy in the fall of 1998, Lemieux, who is an uninsured creditor, he stands to get absolutely nothing. Yeah, that's a big. People don't realize that because I only know this because I know people have gone through this. Like your last paycheck, they can pay you 10 cents on the dollar. So I don't know what 10 cents on the dollar of 32 million, but well, he, he did definitely going to be 90% less than you should be getting. He, he, he did sue Marino and he won, I believe it was $5 million. So maybe that's the 10 cents that you're talking about or, or whatever that, whatever that equivalent is. Um, but that was all he got. And that was not a lot. I mean, you figure uh, $32 million, that was years and years of, of him playing for the Penguins that he was owed. So now, um, you know, he starts meeting with his advisors to talk about what do we do? Um, and, and so now Mario's got a big problem. So <laughs> the season starts under this just ginormous cloud of um, financial ruin. The, the players are able to focus on hockey, though. Um, at least that's what they're saying in the press. I, I went and I tried to find a, a bunch of old news stories from that early in that season. And, you know, at least, at least again, in the media, the players are saying, you know what, this doesn't really affect us. Um, the, the team's still able to meet payroll barely, um, thanks to loans and other, you mentioned Steve, Chapter 11, other reorg. So they are able to, to you know, write checks. And I think if you're an employee, if you're a player, um, you know, some of these guys that play for other teams, you know, it, I guess as long as you're still getting paid, as long as you're still at practice every day and playing the games, I, I can see where maybe it doesn't really affect you as a player. Um, they, they do mention some things like they're not staying at luxury hotels on the road anymore. Um, I did find a story about there was a, there was a broken water pump uh, in, in the hot tub at their practice facility that, that, didn't get fixed because the company that installed it never got paid. Uh, so, so there were little things like that, um, but nothing to, you know, to, to be like, oh, what was us? We can't, we can't go on with this season. So, so the, the financial issues aren't really interfering with the, the team's ability to play. And, and as the season kind of starts going, the Penguins come out of the gate and they're, they're mediocre. And that's really what everybody expected of them. Um, they, they make a big trade in late November of that year. They, they trade Peter Nedved and Chris Tamer and Sean Pronger to the Rangers, and they get Alexei Kovalev. Alexei Kovalev was a guy that um, was a big talent, had never really quite lived up to that talent, and ends up being a really good trade for the Penguins in, in the long term. In the short term, it's it's... It doesn't really do all that much. Kovalev doesn't come to Pittsburgh and light things on fire. 
Um, he, again, he does later, a few years later, but that first year he doesn't do all that much. He could really skate. And, like, I know Don Cherry would sometimes say he dances too much. Cause it, he could at times, like, make unnecessary movements. But he could really, like, it was almost like, I don't know, like Michael Jordan, you know, like where he could really fake a guy out of his own skates. And that was, that was you know, he was really good at that, you know. <laughs> a couple of years later, um, they put him on a line with Straka and with Robert Lang. And that was after Mario came back. And um, and that line was just amazing, uh, and and so those guys ended up again becoming really good players. But if you look at kind of the the stats and everything for that season, Kovalev doesn't really end up being that big of a contributor. So so by by late January, by the All Star break, the team's twenty and fifteen, and they're hovering right around that that line of playoff teams uh, or teams that qualify for the playoffs. You know they they they're like one point ahead or something, you know, they could easily fall out of the playoff picture. So again, middle of the pack, sort of where everybody expected them. After the All-Star break, they get hot. Uh, they reel off a 10-game winning streak, which is a big deal. Ten, ten games in a row in hockey is not easy to, to win. So that that's significant. And it's really fortunate because it, it, it does save their season. Um, because in their last 30 games, they only win six of their final 30 games. Now, I think, you know, a handful of those at least were ties, and you still get a point for a tie back then. Um, but but they did not win a lot of games at the end of the season, six of their final 30, and they finished the regular season as the number eight seed, which is the final playoff spot in the Eastern Conference. So they barely, just barely, squeak into the playoffs. Uh, one last note on the regular season before we start talking about the playoffs. Um, the, the final regular season game is scheduled to be played at Madison Square Garden. And Wayne Gretzky, who's playing for the Rangers at this point, announces that he's going to retire. So this this ends up being uh, Wayne Gretzky's final ever game against the Penguins at, in Madison Square Garden. So that's a big deal. That gets a ton of fanfare. I think they painted like 99 on the ice. Um, you know, just a just a big deal. And um, the game goes into overtime, and Yager actually scores the game-winning game goal in overtime. And and Steve, I don't, I don't know how you feel about Wayne Gretzky. I I never I never like hated Wayne Gretzky. I respected him. He's he's a great player, and and I, it's hard to hard to not say he's you know the greatest ever, um, just based on the records and everything. But I, I always resented the fact that you know he he was always worshipped as this like greater than Lemieux, and I just Lemieux was, I just always thought Lemieux had more talent. Lemieux just had the injuries and the unfortunate luck. He also didn't have the, the players around him that Gretzky had early in his career. Well, it, you weren't, the refs didn't let people hit him. Ty Domi yeah. would beat people up. I mean, they, they, they had, he had a lot of other things going for him. And two, it's always like, it's a contrast of style. Whereas I thought Lemieux was more of a one-on-one player, although Lemieux could pass too, and Gretzky was more of a distributor. You know, it's kind of like pick your poison. Like it's almost like a point guard in basketball. Do you want the guy that drives to the basket? Like, you know, uh, I don't know. Am I thinking of like Isaiah Thomas or like well, Michael Jordan really isn't a point guard, or you want Magic Johnson who's going to be the distributor? And the same thing with Gretzky and even Crosby. They're more of a distributor, although they both could score goals and they scored a lot of goals. Or do you want Ovechkin, who's just that right, not a center, but a right winger, who's just going to absolutely blister the puck from that dot, you know, and score yeah. a lot of goals that way. So it is a contrast of styles. But there were some other stuff, too, was Gretzky was English-Canadian and Lemieux was French-Canadian. And Canada is a weird country. I've done business with that country. Like when I mainly I would ship a lot of stuff for a warehouse and we had a warehouse in Nova Scotia and you would hope that it didn't go through Montreal because it would take three extra days because the French Canadians would always want to stick it to the English Canadians in Nova Scotia. It's just an odd dynamic. And then you throw in the Native Americans and the, the Western part of the country, it's kind of its own little deal. It's an odd little dynamic there. And I think that kind of carried over like Madden always says that about, you know, that, they didn't. They kind of stuck it to Lemieux because they didn't like because he was French Canadian, not English Canadian, and 
Well, that's that definitely seeped into the media because um, the, the the most egregious example of that was the the 1989 season. Mario Lemieux uh, won the scoring title by 31 points, and I believe the difference was all goals over Gretzky. 31 points, and they gave the hard trophy to Gretzky because that was Gretzky's first year in Los Angeles, and they wanted it to be like, oh, look how he you know revived hockey in the United States and all this stuff. And meanwhile, Lemieux was had had a way better season. And that was when Lemieux, I, I believe when Lemieux famously made the quote about um, the only the only award he cared about was the Art Ross, the scoring title, because nobody voted on it. Um, I agree with him on that. That's why I don't yeah. follow the Heisman or NL, NFL MVP. I don't really care. Lamar Jackson, congratulations. Hey, how was that first round playoff loss, buddy? Yeah. NFLP or NFL MVP. It's same with all the Heismans. I mean, what does it mean? Ty Detmer. What did Ty Detmer ever do? He had a yeah. barely mediocre career. I mean, it's just a, it's just like, you know, a Miss America or, you know, nice thing to have, but, I mean, it doesn't mean much to me. I'm with Mario on that one. I agree. You and can't fake goals. It either went in or it didn't. And, you know, it's getting – it's got, at least it got like that with the Vesna too. The goalie award, like who has the lowest save percentage? There you go. There's your number. Take it or leave it. You know. Right. Right. Yeah. And and so and so I didn't. Again, I didn't hate Gretzky. He's a great player. You're never gonna you know be ridiculous to say otherwise. But I, I remember watching that game, kind of feeling a little bit uh, of of guilty pleasure. Him. Guilty pleasure. He was sitting on the bench when Yager scores that goal. And it would have been better if he was on the ice. That, that's true. That's true. It would have but been his minus, rectus plus minus. This kind of Yager ends, ends Gretzky's career with an overtime goal. And, and did it, Yager do the salute too? Because remember, he always did the Denver like. Salute. Oh yeah, the, the or no, that was the Atlanta Falcons, wasn't it? No, it was the Denver. Didn't they do? Oh, it was Denver. Mile You're right. Salute. Yeah. Yeah, the Falcons were the. the the Falcons were the dirty bird or whatever. Anyway, I think we're getting off track here, but, but it's it's a little of a passing of the torch moment. I mean, Gretzky is certainly not the best player in the league, had not been for quite a few years at that point. He's definitely not retiring at the top of his game. But Yager at this point is. Um, Yager wins the scoring title that year. Yager also eventually wins the Hart Trophy. It's the only um, Hart Trophy he ever wins. It's his only MVP award. So he's at the absolute height of his powers. In 1999, so, so the regular season ends, um, but but the whole bankruptcy situation is is far from settled. The, the the two biggest creditors were SMG, who, as we mentioned, the group that owns the arena, and Mario, and both of them are entertaining the same idea, which is, hey, we can recover at least some of the cash owed to us by buying the franchise out of bankruptcy. So both of those groups are putting together plans. However, that being said, everything's still up in the air. Uh, there was talk of moving the franchise. Uh, of course, you know, anytime something like this happens, it's like, oh, maybe they'll move to another city. But but there really isn't an out-of-town buyer interested. So so there's actually a real prospect, as hard as this is to believe, of just literally dissolving the franchise. Um, now, now that's happened many times in pro sports leagues before, but but typically it's either in you know lesser known sports leagues or if it's in in one of the major sports leagues, you know it was back in 1929 when like the the Lancaster Maroons or whatever folded Pottsville in the middle of the season. Maroons. Yeah, <laughs> you know it's not it's the some, Pottsville Maroons. No, it's, I think it's, they won a championship. <laughs> it well, but it's it's some yeah. you know it's some bygone era. Um, might have been uh, the Canton Bulldogs. Or <laughs> but, but, you know, in 1999, so, so you think of it as happening, you know, when before these leagues were, were, were well known. Um, but, you know, it, the, in the four um, big North American sports leagues, that's NFL, NHL, MLB, and NBA, the, the last franchise to cease operations uh, is the Cleveland Barons, an NHL team. And that actually happens in 1978. So it wasn't, it was only 20 years before this that a major sports franchise and an NHL franchise had folded. Uh, and of course, you know, figures it was a Cleveland team. Um, but but it's, not, it's not out of the question that that could happen where the team could just cease to exist. Uh, so so that's, 
that's where things are headed into the playoffs. The first uh, round playoff opponent is the number one seed, and that's the New Jersey Devils. Uh, we mentioned the Devils before when we talked about the trap and this era of clutch and grab. Um, no, no franchise perfected that style like the New Jersey Devils. They are the absolute powerhouse team of this era. Between 1995 and 2003, they win the Eastern Conference four different times, and they win the Stanley Cup three times. They have um, not only you know a great defense and that style that they play, but they have arguably the league's best goaltender. Um, Steve, you mentioned him before, Martin Verdor. He's just a shutdown goaltender. The, the style, everything that they do fits around Martin Verdor. Was the only was the only team to really stop them the Red Wings? And did the Red Wings no. ever beat them in the finals? No, they beat the Red Wings in the finals. The only well, team when that, did the Red Wings do back to back? Was that ninety nine? No. No. So the the Devils beat the Red Wings in ninety five. Um, they beat the Stars in two thousand, and they beat the Ducks in two thousand three. The team that beat them in the finals was the Colorado Avalanche in two thousand one, and that was a seven game series. I mean, that went right down to the end. Uh, so yeah, they 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 won three cups and they almost won a fourth. They were one game away from winning a fourth. Wow. So very good team, not not a popular team. You know, it's funny. Usually when you have teams that win that are dynasties, you you have like a bandwagon set of fans. You have fans from outside that market that root for the team because they're winners. Um, that didn't really happen with the Devils, you know. Um, and it was because I think nobody really liked the style that they play. And it was hard to get on board and be like, yeah, that team's awesome. Um, you know, like it is with like a, you know, I don't know, Golden State Warriors and Steph Curry. Where do they, they play in New Jersey? Like what, what's that, the, uh, the Meadowlands? I mean, I don't think there's like a really big, like metropolitan fan base. You have the Rangers and the Islanders in New York. And then you kind of have like the, you know, when they, you know, when they, you know where they had their Stanley Cup parades at? Where? In the parking lot. <laughs> they did have the parking lot of uh, the Meadowlands, yeah. Nice. It was seriously not even I, – I don't know where else they could have had them in New Jersey. <laughs> I guess apparently not. Yeah, so so not, not well-liked and, you know, but, you know, very successful nonetheless. You can't, can't say they weren't successful for sure. And, and this year, 1999, they're the number one seeds. They're obviously heavy favorites uh, in a one-to-eight matchup. Uh, but the other reason that they're heavy favorites is because Yager enters the series suffering from a, a pretty severe groin injury. Um, they've just gotten worse and worse as the end of the season um, came. And, and so game one uh, is in New Jersey, and the Devils win. It's, it's a close game. Uh, the Penguins actually outshoot the Devils in, in game one. But Brodor makes some big saves. Uh, Peter Sikora for the Devils um, scores twice. Uh, Peter Score, of course, later becomes a Penguin. Um, but he wonder scores... if he predicted any of those goals. Yeah, yes. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Um, and, 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 you know, Yager in that first game, he really struggles. Um, the, the, the Devils, uh, again, Brodeur really was what made them tick. But they had these defensemen, Scott Stevens, a Hall of Famer. Scott Niedermeyer, I believe, is also a Hall of Famer. Um, they were both all over Yager. And he's, he's clearly not 100%. He can't, he can't do anything. Um, and, and so the Devils take game one. And then the series, like, right off the bat gets ugly. Uh, the Penguins had acquired uh, Matthew Barnaby in, in a late-season trade. Matthew Barnaby, Steve, how would you describe him? He's not a goon. No, he's, like, one of those classic agitators. Like, he's not going to, like – I mean, he'll fight you, but that's not, like – he's not, like you – know, like who Donald Brashear or like you know Ty Domi I already mentioned he's not like a, a fighter he's more of like an instigator where he tries to get you to take a penalty he'll do like little cross checks when or like you know when they get in the glass and they put their glove up in the face you know give him a face wash like stuff like that like stuff that's not necessarily a penalty Sean Avery perfect example like stand in front of that was my favorite like he did, was that pro door or Halunquist? that was pro door because he played for the rangers yeah. and he stood they remember the nhl had to change the rule the next day because he put his hand in front of pro doors yes face. yes yeah no, sean <laughs> so avery. sean avery is probably a perfect example of 
Yes, and, and if you remember Sean Avery, you're right. Matthew Barnaby was a very similar player to Avery. He, he wasn't a goon. He wasn't a great player. He was like a mediocre player, but he just would just get under people's skin. Just do it, like I said, like literally putting your hand in front of her doors. Right. And you didn't know who to root for in that case. You're like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, and, and Barnaby, so, so getting under the skin, he immediately – um, ignites a feud with Devils defenseman Lyle Odeline. Actually, I should say reignites because that's actually a longstanding feud, Barnaby and Odeline from Barnaby's days in Buffalo. And um, he calls Odeline Cornelius. Um, I've never seen Planet of the Apes, Steve, but apparently he thinks that. Lyle I don't know why Odeline you didn't go with Cornelius. Dr. Sayus. <laughs> Did you ever remember the Simpsons had the musical version of Detroit? That, honestly, that's my like only Planet of the Apes reference. Out of me. <laughs> you know, and and I already know the spoiler of how it ends. So that's um, not how the movie ends. No, no, no. I I know. <laughs> but it's a great movie. You should really watch it. It's, a, I'll, it's I'll the opposite right of what the uh, Troy McClure version is. <laughs> oh, I digress. So, so so Cornelius was the young. Uh, kid who was kind of like didn't was kind of uh naive so i okay I but, he, he, but, he, like, but he, he looks like an ape right yeah and so i guess was probably more of what i guess matthew barnaby was hinting at not that is this guy maybe this guy was naive i don't know right right <laughs> and so o odeline then is quoted as saying um that barnaby's wife christina is quote god awful to look at <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah. yeah i mean they're just taking like real personal shots at each other so that's that kind of adds some fun to the series, but but on the ice, um, you know it, things aren't aren't trending up for the Penguins because Yager uh, for Game Two is now out. Um, you know, Game One again he was hobbled, and Game Two he just can't play. And so what happens? Somehow the Penguins pull off a four-to-one victory in New Jersey in Game Two, which is stunning. They come back to Pittsburgh for Game Three, and again without Yager. And again, they win. They, they, this time, they overcome a 3-2 to two deficit with two goals in the first minute of the third period, and then end up hanging on for a 4-2 victory. Um, Straka has a hat trick. The Civic Arena is rocking. The Post-Gazette, the day after, in their write-up, uh, says that it feels like 1992 in the Civic Arena. And all of a sudden, the Penguins are up 2-1 to one in the series. And, and the Jersey fans and the, the media um, start getting nervous because the, the, the Devils uh, had won their division each of the previous two seasons, but were upset in the playoffs each time by a lower seed. And this 99 team was even better than those two teams, and now they're down 2-1 to one in the series to the number eight seed who's playing without their best player. So definitely some, some consternation there on the, on the Devils' side. But, you know, as good teams often do, New Jersey kind of rights the ship. Uh, they win game four in Pittsburgh, and then they go back to New Jersey, and they win game five. And at this point now, the, this pendulum has completely swung the other way. New Jersey once again looks like a well-oiled machine, and the, the pens just look overmatched. I, I just I remember watching those games. Okay, well, you know, we, we showed some life. That's good. But, but they're just better. I mean, they were just better than us. And, and we had no answer. And, and so now um, the Penguins are on the brink of elimination, headed back to Pittsburgh for game six. Uh, the good news is that Yager, who has not played in games two through five, is going to come back for game six because the, the whole season's on the line. Uh, so he's going to force himself to play. Nobody knew if you know, he was going to be anywhere near effective, but it was worth giving it a shot because this was it. I think he had some acupuncture. <laughs> Is that what did it? <laughs> yeah. Those little needles, they worked the trick. Yes. So so game six is played on May 2nd, 1999. It's, it's an afternoon game. It's a Sunday afternoon game in Pittsburgh. It was an eerie kind of feeling when the game starts. I, I remember watching this. I was in my dorm room. At Duquesne University, I just finished my finals. I was watching it by myself, and and I don't know how fans have felt of teams, you know, um, that that have moved, or that you know may not exist anymore. You know, kind of watching what may be that last game, but but for me, I just remember like this is so strange. Like this might be 
seriously, it might be the last time I ever watch my favorite team play because they may not, they may move to another city or what seemed more likely at the time, they may just not exist anymore after today. And that's just a weird feeling. It's the only time in my life as a sports fan I ever ever had that situation. So that's the feeling going into the game. A lot of other people, you know, obviously in Pittsburgh felt the same way. Uh, the Devils um, take a one nothing lead in the first period. The Penguins even up in the second. Uh, but then in the third period, Niedermeyer scores on a power play, and that gives New Jersey a 2-1 to lead. Um, a 2-1 to lead is just absolute gold for a team like the Devils that play that defensive-minded game, that have the best goaltender. Uh, holding a 2-1 to lead is not a challenge for them. So, you know, now the Penguins are frantically trying to come back, um, but, you know, they're not having any success. The minutes start to tick away. I remember in my head, I'm like flashing back to like the Stanley Cup years and my favorite moments, just kind of trying to savor, you know, what could be yeah. the last few minutes of, of Penguin hockey that I'll ever see. Um, Yager, meanwhile, he, he's not giving up. Um, he ends up playing 29 minutes in this game, despite the major injury. And, you know, he's, he's arguably the best player on the ice that day. Um, but it, you know, as the minutes tick away, it does, doesn't matter on the scoreboard because it's two to one Devils. But you know, one one thing you can say about Yager, Yager certainly has a checkered history in Pittsburgh. Um, a lot of love hate with Yager, but but he was always clutch. I I think, in my opinion, Steve, one of the most clutch players in the history of Pittsburgh sports. Well, you look at some of the goals he scored. Even in '91, didn't he come off the bench and score one in overtime against somebody? Yeah, that was against Boston, I think. Yeah, then the '92, he was part of that big comeback against the Blackhawks in the game yes. one. Yes, he scored that mean, magnificent goal. Yep. And then, of course, we're leading up to this. Yeah. Run. Yes. And so, um, with under two minutes left, um, Titov kind of storms into the the Devils' end, and he's. Pushed into the corner, he kind of um, flutters the puck back towards the net where Yager is. Um, Brodeur standing right in front of the net, and Yager somehow jams it through to tie the game and send it to overtime. If you watch the replay of that goal, I, I still don't know exactly how it went in, um, but somehow he gets it through, and uh, it's shocking because the game's now going into overtime. You, you know, just a minute ago, you're 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 season's over and you're you're assuming that the season's over and the franchise is over now we're headed into overtime so that was pretty shocking um in overtime the penguins definitely have the momentum because of that goal you know but the devils are still shutting them down shutting them down um about nine minutes into overtime uh they finally get a chance and that is when this happens So Straka breaks in. Uh, he he crosses, does a cross pass, uh, cross ice pass to Yager. Um, Yager beats uh, Stevens on the play, beats Brodeur, and he wins the game. It's a shocking and significant goal. It, it's it's a goal that not only wins the game, um, but breathes new life uh, into the into the series and into the franchise. Uh, the the team. Obviously, it was bleeding money. The, the home playoff games were huge money makers. And it was something that the team badly needed to be able to keep things going and to possibly be able to close a deal with another buyer. Um, here's, I want to read what Yager said about that goal years later. He said, quote, I remember that like it happened yesterday. Uh, we were losing three to two in the series. And if we would lose the first round, I think the team would move to Kansas City because they had no money. We had to make the second round to get the money for the payments. I came back and tied it with a minute and a half to go, then I scored in overtime. That was probably my best game ever, I would say. My most important for sure, I'll never score a goal that important. Probably if I hadn't scored that goal, the team wouldn't be in Pittsburgh right now. Sidney Crosby would be playing somewhere else. Jeez. 
it's a lot of repercussions there from one goal. It is. Um, the, the Penguins end up winning game seven at New Jersey. Um, uh, they still had to win game seven, but they do. And the Devils players openly admit uh, in the media that the series was lost when Yager tied and won the game, uh, game six in Pittsburgh. I mean, they, they didn't give up for game seven. I'm sure they still tried, but they knew at that point it was over. Uh, and and so the Penguins went on to play a second round. They play, play a pretty spirited second round against the Maple Leafs, but they're ultimately eliminated in six games. But, uh, you know, they, they still went a lot farther than everybody thought they would. And then later that summer... I'm sure, I'm sure two or... Well, how many games did they play? They play six, so... They're probably still the eighth seed, so what, they got two more home games out of that? It, w- it would have been three, six three. games it would have been. So, yeah, three more sellouts. I remember there were a lot of Maple Leafs fans in town, too. I guess it isn't that long to drive, but, hey, money's money. Yeah, yeah, I went to I went to one of those games against Toronto, and um, there were a lot of Maple Leafs fans. Um, but, yeah, like you said, th- they were packed. That's uh, all right. The Penguins have won five Stanley Cups since 1967. Do you know how many the Toronto Maple Leafs have won since 1967? It's a number less than one. I know that. I think it's zero. (laughs) Wow. How how do you screw that up with all that money? I mean, they literally have money to burn, and you can't win one in, what is it, 50 years? Come on. I know. (laughs) I know. That's a shame. So that was a big win in Game 7 in a uh, spirited Second-round series against the uh, Leafs are, uh, unfortunately, falls short. Um, right. As they say, the uh, rest is history because later that summer, uh, Mario, instead of taking his $32 million, just um, takes, his, uh, takes it out as a team. They give him the team pretty much, you know. And it was, uh, you know, a big decision for Mario. He did take a chance, but he believed in hockey in Pittsburgh and, you know, really, it was, you know, makes him a legend. Outside of the Chief, I would say uh, Art Rooney Sr., he's probably the second most legendary owner in Pittsburgh sports. I mean, the Galbraiths owned the Pirates, but really for longevity and saving a sport and keeping a team alive through the rough years, for my money, I think it's the Chief and then Mario maybe second. And maybe not, maybe not even, might be 1A, 1B, because yeah. they're both – both great people that do a lot of great things for people. And I'm sure there's many more stories we'll hear as Mario gets older about, you know, how good of a person he is. And, um, you know, he's given, he gives money to uh, cancer research. Um, There's a whole floor in um, the Hillman Cancer Center named after him. Um, He is, he's donated money for rooms for children at Children's Hospital. Um, you know, he's very, very chief. He reminds me a lot of, like, the chief, even though it's kind of weird that, you know, he's not necessarily – he didn't grow up in Pittsburgh. He grew up in Montreal. But, yeah, very interesting. Um, yeah, there's very much characteristics between those two people. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and you know, Mario – to me, Mario's the real hero of this story. I mean, I, I – you know, so, so let's talk about that. Did, did that goal – literally saved the team, as Yager said. And, and by the way, Yager's not the only one to say that. Um, Paul Staggerwald has said that. There's been lots of other people that have said, you know, that goal made all the difference. If Yager doesn't score that goal, if the Devils get the next goal, you know, we may not have the Penguins anymore. Um, how much legitimacy is there to that? Um, I, I don't know that we'll ever know the answer to that question for sure. Uh, but I, I think it a little bit, it overshadows the fact that you know, to your point, Steve, the, the real hero here is Mario Lemieux. Um, a, a couple of years ago, um, the Post-Gazette did a, a long-form story on Lemieux, and they, they delved into the events that were going on at this time. And and again, you know, the, the, the whole strategy uh, for, for Mario was to, to buy the team and to get all his money up front. Um, you know, not not just not just get the team, but get all his money back. It's thirty-two million dollars, uh, and uh, they they're putting together this plan. And there's a story where um, Mario's uh, attorney, a guy named Chuck Greenberg, um, gets a call from Mario on a Sunday morning. And this is what Greenberg said. He's, he said uh, Mario called me and said, "quote I've been up all night thinking. If I went through everything I did in my career only for the Penguins to have." to leave town a couple of years later, 
what have I really accomplished? We have to make sure they stay in Pittsburgh. Lemieux had decided that he was no longer going to receive any money after acquiring the team. He would turn much of what he what much of what he was owed into equity and also contribute the five million dollars that he made from the lawsuit with Marino. Greenberg, his attorney, was taken aback. He asked Mario to take a minute and think about his family. He would be risking never getting the money or even losing money if the Penguins weren't successful. That's the way it has to be, Greenberg recalls Lemieux saying. When Team Lemieux told the bankruptcy judges about this change in strategy, they became the favorite option. So it's really the unselfishness of Mario Lemieux. You know, Steve, you mentioned it was a risk. I mean, it was a huge risk buying that team. Um, the, 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 in that same story, uh, his agent said he was so worried that Mario was going to, to spend the rest of his life uh, in the middle of Monroeville Mall hawking autographs just to try to make some of his money back. And, you know, he had already gotten $5 million in that lawsuit. And now he's going to give that up and give up any chance of guaranteed money just for the, the virtuous act of keeping the team in town. And, you know, his attorney, his agent, all the, all the people that, you know, were supposed to advise him are telling him that that's a terrible business decision. And honestly, it is. It's not a good business decision at all. But Mario cared more about the team than he did about well, making I, I don't think back. he was ever going to get that 32 million and I'm sure he's seen that 32 million back plus you know oh yeah I mean well yeah. you said it could they could have went belly up but very very easily they could have went belly up I mean and he, no and he did eventually get the new they desperately like I've said before like the Civic Arena was not a great place to watch hockey it really wasn't like I remember going to games there and sitting in like level C which is supposed to be not bad seats and everybody kept standing up, and I kept wondering, and I noticed it was because the monitors and the overhang from the next level, you couldn't see the other side of the ice. To see the other side of the ice, you would have to stand up. And so the console was a big improvement, and that helped keep the team in Pittsburgh, and it's been, you know, a great, a great thing for, for the Penguins and a great thing for the city. They have other events there. You know, you love to go see monster trucks run over stuff. That's always fun. <laughs> and, you know, in concerts. And I think I saw Billy Joel there a couple times. So, Don't you know, forget, it's benefited the city for sure. Don't you know? forget Disney on Ice. I've, I've taken my daughters there as well. Oh, I haven't been to Disney on Ice since I was a kid. Jeez. Yeah, it's, it's not um, – it's probably just like you remember, just as bad. <laughs> Only with um, like new characters, Aladdin and Frozen. Yeah. And, yeah. Exactly, exactly. Uh, so, so yeah. I, to me, that, that's Mario is the real, the real reason that the team is saved. Um, but you know, this goal, it, it, it's still important. Um, it and, and honestly, it, I think it has to rank as one of the most dramatic moments in Pittsburgh sports history. Uh, the championship wasn't on the line like it was when Mass hit the home run or when Santonio makes the catch in the Super Bowl. Um, but, you know, the entire fate of the franchise was up in the air. And there's really no other moment in Pittsburgh sports that has that kind of background to it. So to me, this is still a, a pretty important moment. Um, it, it, the aftermath of this, uh, the Devils go on to win the Cup the following year, you know, at that point, it was like, oh, boy, this is going to be unfulfilled promise. Well, they bounce back. They win the Cup in 2000, uh, and, and then they go back to the finals in 2001 by def defeating the Penguins, getting revenge on the Penguins in the conference finals. So the Devils make up pretty well. Um, Team Lemieux, as you said, Steve, makes up pretty well. Um, not, not right away. There's some, some lean years there. But then they win the draft lottery for Sidney Crosby, um, the league implements a salary cap, all kinds of things, and the new building, like you said, you know, all kinds of things that, that, that favor the Penguins. And I, I would offer up that they are the toast of the town again. Yeah, and they're, and they're quite – they're, you know, with five Stanley Cups, they're the most successful expansion team in, in, uh, outside of the original six. They're the most successful expansion team. I mean, yeah. I don't think any other – well, the Flyers have two. Right. Um, who else? St. Louis just won their first. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I mean, also, also look within uh, Tampa the Bay. Does Tampa Bay have just one still? Yeah. Uh, yep. Yep. And Carolina only has one. Right. Washington. Dallas has one. Yeah. Buffalo's never won it. 
Yeah. Yeah. So they really are the most successful. You know, the Kings have two. That's another expansion. Yeah. Yeah. The Devils, I think, came after the Penguins. They have three. I mean, so there's. They're definitely the most, you know, they're definitely the most successful uh, expansive franchise, I would say. Well, and look at the, even within the city, um, they've won three championships since anybody else in the city has won anything. Um, the, yeah. the Steelers won the Super Bowl in 2008 since then. Yeah, so they haven't won since, yeah. Yeah, since then the Penguins have won three championships. So that's all possible thanks to, you know, some combination of this goal and, and Mario buying the team. Well, you know, at least I think at least it proved the team could be viable again and kept them afloat long enough to Mariota finally kind of you know, like I said, I think he made a calculation. I kind of could see thirty-two million. I could maybe see half of it or keep the team in Pittsburgh, own a hockey team, and it, you know, not the worst thing in the world, you know. And uh, Ken, it was a Ken Sawyer came on board as a, or was that Burkle? Burkle. It was Burkle, yeah, Burkle right? Yeah. Right. Burgle came on board and helped out with some money stuff. So, I mean, it definitely, you know, he had to hit some green lights going downhill, but, you know, things kind of broke broke out right for him, and it's nice to see the good guys win one. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And, and it's, you know, you can assign whatever level of importance you want to this goal, but I'm glad we were not living in a world where we had to see what happens if Yager doesn't score that goal. That's for sure. Any other final thoughts, Steve? No, just a great goal, and uh, thank God for Yarmer, even though he never came back after all that. But uh, we owe Yager that one. Clutch player, Mario, you know, clutch in his own way, and, uh, you know, it all worked out for the Penguins. Absolutely. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening. Please check us out uh, on Twitter or Facebook, Pittsburgh Sports Memories. Also, please check out our website. It's pittsburghsportsmemories.weebly.com. And we'll catch you next time. Bye-bye.